I'm wondering right now a lot about the start of a school year and why it's so hard to get people to wonder in schools all the time. And I feel like more and more uh, I get to spend time helping people remember to pay attention and ask questions. So I'm wondering about why that's so hard, why that seems so difficult to get to have happen in schools and uh, how we can make that better. Hello everyone, welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast. My name is Lynn Hilt and I'm joined by Will Richardson today as we talk with our special guest, Bud Hunt. One of our recent themes inside Modern Learners community is media literacy and what that really means and how it impacts today's learners. So we know that having Bud in the conversation today will provide us with insights into literacy, making, leadership, understanding communication in the digital age, and of course, a lot of good cheer. So we thank Bud for joining us and we hope you enjoyed this conversation here on the Modern Learners Podcast. We are happy to have you today, Bud Hunt. Thank you for joining us. The reason we asked Bud to come today to talk with us is because our monthly theme in Modern Learners community this month is modern literacy. And we've been exploring a number of different topics and concepts all about um, literacy in, in the modern age and what that what the influences of digital technologies and the fact that information is available um, with a click here and there and in such abundance, what that means for teachers and learners and schools. Um, and we find Bud to be uh, not only well-versed in literacy as a former English teacher and a, a prolific writer, but just someone who's really great to talk to and brings original thoughts and ideas to the table. And so thank you, Bud, for joining us Absolutely. today. Yeah, today I watched a little bit of uh, Tara Gentili, who is a uh, marketing guru, a small business owner, and she was talking about podcasts. And she said, look, nobody wants to hear your podcast start out with a boring introduction of who the guest is. And I thought, you know what? I'm not even going to introduce Bud. I, <laughs> I wouldn't. It doesn't matter who this guy is. But what we want to know from you, uh, Bud, is what are you wondering about right now? What is, you know, besides current events, what is, what are you wondering about? What are you curious about? <laughs> right this minute, I'm wondering about, well, I'm wondering what's happening in Congress. Just this moment. Just the one hearing. But um, thank you guys for letting me spend some time with you. I'm wondering right now a lot about the start of a school year and why it's so hard to get people to wonder in schools all the time. Um, I know that sounds terrible, but uh, I'm a, I think I'm a two trick pony. I have two tricks and one of them is uh, paying attention and the other is asking questions. And I feel like more and more uh, I get to spend time helping people remember to pay attention and ask questions. So I'm wondering about why that's so hard, um, why that seems so difficult to get to have happen in schools and uh, how we can make that better. So do you think schools are about questions? I mean, well, <laughs> I think they're supposed to be, but I think, I think there's a lot of things that get in the way of asking good questions, right? Um, I remember, just really fast, I remember going to a school where um, I walked in and, and they were just projecting uh, National Geographic um, or, or whoever it was, the best pictures of the year, right? They had like 100 pictures. And there were about 20 kids in the room and, and all the teacher was doing was putting up a picture and asking kids, what questions do you have? And, and when I, when I uh, you know, after the class, I said, you know, why, why were you doing it? He goes, because my kids don't know how to ask questions. They're, they're not very, they don't really know really how to do that. And I'm just wondering if that, you know, that adults are somewhat similar in that, that, you know, we're, we're kind of, that's trained out of us. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that a lot of, a lot of what I'm doing lately is helping people remember that and then figuring out ways to carve space and time in the day to do it and then actually spend time doing it. Um, I, think, I think time and schedule and, and hurry and busy, busy, busy and modern and fast and all of these words that we would apply to the, the pace of life today just continually get in the way of asking questions. And then every once in a while trying to answer one. Um, you know, the, the worst thing you can do is let a kid ask a bunch of questions and then never uh, help them. You don't have to answer them, but at least help them, you know, go after them. In your current role, um, I see your insignia there on your Oh, yeah, yeah. got to wear yeah. the library thing. So you're in a library district. So tell us more about what that means and what your role is, because I admit that I am unclear a little bit about what it is, that what role you play. What is it you say you do? <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> uh, so I work, uh, my day job right now is I'm the 
uh, IT and technical services manager for the Clearview Public Library District. So we're a public library district that is uh, roughly uh, the size of the area school district because due to arcane things that happen in Colorado boundary laws, um, we have the same geography as a public school, but we are not attached to the public school. We're an independent public library. Um, right now we're one physical branch in a bookmobile uh, and we uh, do all the things that you would think a public library would and I do all the boring parts. So um, I serve a bunch of really great, talented, uh, really progressive librarians and library people who go into schools and do great events, who are in the community doing lots of stuff, doing tons of outreach. Um, I make sure that the internet's fast, that the uh, books are properly coded, and that the um, that people's library cards work. Um, that's that's the back end boring piece of what it is I do, um, because I know how to do those things. I learned how to do them by working in schools, and it allows me to play in a learning space that isn't a public school, and gives me time to go and visit public schools and do some some work with uh, other folks there. So. Um, this also gave me the opportunity to uh, drive my children's carpools on a regular basis, which I had not gotten to do for a long time. And if you want to uh, have a place where you can uh, wonder about some really important questions, uh, drive five teenagers to middle school and, and just try to take notes as you're listening to them talk about all of the things that are or aren't happening. Priority. A couple of nights ago, we talked with Heather Lister, who is a teacher librarian um, as well. And so she mentioned that she still feels the primary role of the library is it's the place you go to find information. Do you agree with that in terms of what you see from the people who visit your spaces day in and day out? No. What are they looking for? <laughs> well, so people come to our library for a lot of stuff, but um, I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago, our state library conference, and I was listening to a lawyer make the case that there are actually two things happening in public libraries right now from a legal perspective. One is the access to information, which is like this American First Amendment literal right. The right to listen to viewpoints is like an American thing. And that's reading or listening or, or, or hearing them. Um, but he was actually saying that the courts are determining, and they haven't quite determined it yet, and this is one of the reasons I'm so interested in the Supreme Court right now, is um, that there might be a role of the library and the access to the library itself is not the same as access to information, but that the library itself is some sort of a fundamental American right. And then the question is, well, what does that mean? And what we're, what we're trying to tease out of the conversations like that is the library is a space where people can actually come together and sort of on sort of neutral ground right, to engage with one another, to engage with disagreement, to uh, access information, yeah, but also to have like a quiet place to be, um, for which more and more is, is really important. Uh, sometimes it's a gathering space, sometimes it's a tumbler of events or a facility that allows you to do stuff uh, in the civic sense, uh, in the way that a public house may be used to, uh, and still can, and we have a great relationship with all the breweries here in town, uh, which says other things about what our library can be, but, um, <laughs> I'm really thinking a lot about libraries now as a place where information is available and you can get to it and people can help you do magical things with that information, but also the space itself is, it serves some sort of civic purpose, uh, at least I think it should, and I hope it will in American life. So it's interesting because I'm looking at my window right here at the back of our public library in our town here, and um, it's really small little, little space, not, you know, probably thousands of books, but not tens of thousands, if you know what I mean. It's not a, not a huge space. But one of the interesting things that's happened there in the last, uh, it was probably seven, eight years ago now, but um, it's kind of also become a tech hub for, um, for teenagers and for kids. So it's, it's this kind of out of school space um, called media tech, where they come in, there's all sorts of computers, there's maker stuff going on, there's you know, they come in and they can play Fortnite if they want. They can, they can, you know, do robotics, whatever else. I mean, is that kind of the image or the vision that you see of, of a library in terms of um, maybe a, a, a different space for kids to come and pursue the things that they're really interested in? And, and since you're in the technology end of it, you know, to what extent do we provide that technology to kids who may not have it or, or, or what? Yeah, it's definitely one of the things that we do here. One of the struggles we have in this particular facility right now is um, the space that some people want to be quiet for eating and contemplation and the space where kids are coming to, to gather and play, uh, sometimes Fortnite. We just got it installed on all of our teenage computers so that it's no longer the, bud, will you please log me in so I can play Fortnite? <laughs> bud, will you please put in the administrative password so I can download this? Right. Um, but th th those things make sense. Uh, library to me has always been about 
the idea that the stuff that we get to play with, and this gets into issues of literacy, but the stuff of the day is available and maybe I can't afford to own it on my own, but knowing about it seems important and I can make better civic decisions and I can uh, just make choices if I have access to try things out and play around. So um, there are library programs focused heavily on media production. Uh, we do a lot of stuff with just having access to things. So uh, we circulate a lot of physical objects in the library that are tech related and we tend to around Christmas time uh, or sorry, non-denominational winter holiday time, uh, <laughs> obtain the, some of the items that are gonna be hot for Christmas so that parents and kids can come and play with them, try them out, explore. Uh, and some of those are, are sort of uh, saving the money of buying the thing, but some of them are just what is, what's going on in the world right now and what can we show you uh, to. Uh, we circulate a ridiculous amount of drones right now. Um, and drones is a, is a sort of an interesting question of 21st century literacy that uh, there's a lot of baggage that comes with those. But uh, we, we do it because we want people to be able to try stuff out and play around and, and see um, and, and we do have kids coming in and making media, although most of the time they're coming to play uh, games right now, but libraries should have all those sorts of things available for folks to, to fiddle around with. Just, just for the record really fast, the, the uh, media space and the reading space are two very separate spaces in this library. Yeah, you win. That's our problem That's right. right now. We, we literally have actually walled off the quiet yeah. area so okay. that people can have a quiet place to be uh, so that we can make noise in the rest of the library, as opposed to isolating the noise in one part. Um, yeah, anyway, that's, that's our personal uh, space literacy issue. Cool. So I, I'm sorry, I got to jump in, Lynn. I'm sorry. I'll give you yeah. the next question. We're, we're being like the senators here, right? But I'm going to, I'm going to take five more minutes, but talk about, because I just found what you just said, <laughs> my brain just kind of sparked. <laughs> what is drone literacy? I mean, let's. Well, so, so I don't, I'm, I'm trying to pivot back to what we're talking about, but I want, you can't be fluent in a thing until you know what the thing is and you know how it works and you've, and you've had some experience with it, right? So drones are these things right now that everybody is, is really curious about, uh, in part because they're starting to show up places, in part because they're being used to film on these things. So, so uh, also the idea that um, a drone is just a thing that you, you tell it where to go. You ever try to fly a drone, Will? Uh, I have not. Okay, so yeah, how'd that go, Flynn? So it hit the roof and then uh -huh. we, we lost it. And my uh -huh. husband found it when he was mowing the lawn like a couple of days later. <laughs> so, so, okay, I'm gonna come back to that. I wanna tell you a quick story. So- You're illiterate. I, yeah, you're, oh, yeah, you're, you're drone literacy. Mm, you're, good. Um, you're a developing droner, yeah. right? Uh, but you understand some things about 3D uh, dynamics that you didn't understand before I met. Um, when we first started uh, pushing, putting out drones, we we, we buy a really cheap model because we know they're going to get brashed and destroyed and whatnot. But I got, a, I got two voicemails one day from, from a, a customer patron. Uh, and the first voicemail was, hey, if we've lost your drone, can you, there's a homing button on it on the top that's supposed to be like, we've noticed that doesn't work. And then it just hangs up. And then five minutes later, I got another voicemail and it was, hey, so my buddy, same guy, um, he has a drone. And what we're going to do is we think it's in the field and he's going to take his drone, which is a camera, and we're going to look for your drone, and we think it'll happen. And literally, as I'm listening to that message, I get a phone call, and the guy says, yeah, how much was that drone? <laughs> and they were cheap, and it wasn't a big deal. But uh, all I mean by drone literacy is that there's so, much, there's so much stuff in the world right now that I think if you really want to understand it and have a good idea about what it is, what it can do, what it means, particularly with drones, issues of privacy, uh, FAA, you get into airspace, you get into all sorts of things aside from just the three-dimensional piloting and driving and things, like you can't understand what those things are unless you get the opportunity to play with them. And so here at the library, we have a ton of things uh, on our wall, we call them explore kits, that are meant to help people go home and have an experience with the thing to get them started thinking about what that thing is and what it might do. We have been talking about making this, this month, uh, just recently in our, our quest to um, understand literacy and modern literacy and uh, Heather made some great points about the connections between making and literacy and that a lot of times librarians who have traditionally run what you might think of as a standard library are fearful that any inclusion of making um, projects or even just having like you said the equipment there or the the materials available to kids would will take away in some aspects from their emphasis on literacy and 
her point was, you know what, no, it's actually adding to their experiences with literacy. And something that you had shared, you said the world is a made world. It's probably good if we and our students better understand what that means. People make things by making decisions and so on. And I know you spent time at um, Constructing Modern Knowledge this summer, which I was very jealous about. And one summer I will get there. Um, and yeah, so you were kind of in it. And I noticed a lot of your reflective um, pieces from that event were through writing, which I think that you've always kind of turned to when you're thinking through things. So tell us about, in your mind, how making fits into the literacy realm and you know what that really means to you, what that experience uh, meant to you. Yeah, so I don't know how you guys are defining literacy, but I have some guesses, right? I'm assuming that we started with reading and writing and then we got into some new literacy stuff around like, a Noble and Langshire sort of, there's stuff we can do now that we couldn't do before uh, and those sorts of things. Um, that'd be fun to come back to. But if you ask me about making and, and I get really excited about composition as a word for, as a way to think about making, but then my background's an English teacher. Hi, Will, high five. Uh, English teachers back in the day, whatever. Um, I, get, I get pumped about uh, thinking about uh, making is this sort of fundamental thing that people do and writing teachers do it. It's just the tool sets that change, right? English teachers, work with words and verbs. Sometimes we work with um, the seven deadly sins, you know, motivations for characters and things. But the, the stuff that we have in our making labs uh, or our English labs are really powerful things. But um, the, when I talk about a made world, like all the stuff we use, all the technology that we use, somebody made decisions about them at some point. So I have a pocket notebook here, shocker that I would be carrying around a notebook. At some point in the world, people decided that three and a half by five was a standard size. You don't need to know why, you just need to know that somebody did because when somebody says, I wanna do this or I wanna do that or whatever, like all these things were made, they were made by people. I think we forget a lot of times that the decisions that govern a lot of our day-to-day -day lives are decisions that people made, right? So you're sitting in a chair, that chair is, uh, may have wheels on it, it may not. You made a decision when you bought the chair that you wanted to either roll around or you didn't. Um, but those decisions have impacts later. And I think a lot of times, I know this is true for me, I will walk into a situation and forget that a lot of the things that are constraints in that situation are, are, are man-made constraints, either because we built the room a certain way or we put a thing here or we did a thing at three o'clock instead of at five o'clock or whatever. So I think remembering that the world is a made place is really important. And if you ask me if that takes away from the library experience, no. Um, libraries have always been about spaces and, and opportunities to, to sort of pool your resources so that everybody has access to the fancy stuff. Um, at the time of Ben Franklin, the fancy stuff were books, right? Those were the expensive things. Books are the cheap things in the library now. Um, but all these other things that are coming in that we need to help people understand how they work and what they look like. I'm rambling a little bit because I get excited about this, but um, the, the stuff that makes the world today and the stuff that's making the world of tomorrow is stuff we should be examining and taking apart and looking at and thinking about. I was in a conversation with some librarians recently about uh, Amazon Alexa and all these home assistants and all the, all the great stuff that they can do for you and how libraries need to be on spaces like that. Uh, and in that conversation, I was just shocked how long it took for somebody, and it had to be me because nobody else did it, to say that all of these home assistants that they were really geared and jazzed about were built by stores to sell people things, right? So maybe libraries don't need to be on those spaces because they're not stores trying to sell people things, but the fact that Amazon Alexa talks to you so that she can learn more about your buying preferences. Also, it's weird that I'm calling her a she because um, she is not a person. She is a robot. Uh, but she talks to me so that she can better understand my buying habits so that she can better sell me things. Like those sorts of things about why a thing was made are really important to understand. It's interesting when you said, not sure how you guys are defining literacy. And when you said that, I started thinking, well, I wonder how I really define literacy because it is yeah. far beyond reading and writing. It, even though I think that even the way you just talked about it, maybe we are talking about writing the world, you know, creating the world, writing it, reading it, deconstructing it in many different ways, in many different forms. But that Alexa thing is interesting, right? Because all of a sudden there's an algorithmic literacy that is programmed into our devices that makes it, um, as, you, as we're seeing now, problematic if we don't understand those algorithms. If we don't if we're not aware of how those things operate, and I go back to, you know, Papert, of course, you know, is the child programming the machine or is the machine programming the child? And I think obviously we're at a place right now where our machines are programming us. I mean, I don't think there's any argument about that any longer. And I think that that's the, 
that's the arc of the future too. You get John Hancock who now comes out and says they're not gonna insure anyone. They're not gonna give anyone life insurance who isn't wearing a, a wearable data collecting health device of some type, you know? So there's no question that we're moving in that direction. So I'm wondering, um, and, and we can do this in the context of libraries or just in general, but that whole kind of algorithmic literacy or that whole understanding of the world on that level, I mean, what's your sense in terms of how well we're, how good of a job we're doing and first of all, understanding it for ourselves, but also then helping kids understand the types of environments that they're living in and that they're, they're, they're going to be working in and, you know, whatever. Bad news. I don't think it's going well. I'm not, I'm guessing you're not shocked by that answer. I mean, I, so let's back up and talk about this notion of, of the written world and the writing world and, and all these things. Like, I think that's really important. Because I think literacy is, you can add whatever adjective you want at the front of it, digital literacy, media literacy, new literacy, like Thursday learning. literacy. Like yeah, it is. It's one of those fundamental, yeah, yeah. And, and I know that I'm certain that we're on mostly the same page with that. But um, if you understand that when you're speaking or you're doing something that you, there's this sort of rhetorical process going on, right? Like you're taking in information, you're processing it, you're putting it back out. Um, you have to be aware of your audience when you're doing that. And I think once you start to apply basic audience analysis to like Alexa, who, what is, what is this thing I'm talking to? Well, there's a machine. It's attached to a store. Um, that store is storing an awful lot of personal information about me so that it can hand back information back to me uh, so that I can decide or so that I can be better informed or better uh, sold to so that it's really programming. I mean, you know, whatever, however you get there. Like, it's not fundamentally a different skill than I want to convince uh, the town that we should put in a thing on Saturday, whatever the writing prompt of the week is, you know, write a letter to the mayor telling them why your idea is the best idea. It's not fundamentally this, the different thing, but it gets complicated really quickly. Um, I don't think we're doing a great job of the audience analysis piece at the, at the basic writing prompt level, which means we're totally hosed when we have to abstract audience across a machine or a tool. Um, so I, I, don't th I don't think it's going well. Uh, I've seen places where it is going well, and, I, and the places I'm most interested in right now are the um, sort of ways that folks are using humor and satire and things, just like we've been doing for several hundred years as a people uh, to, to get at these ideas. Uh, I listened to a talk from uh, Baratunde Thurston a little while ago. Uh, he was speaking at CLS, and he talked about an app that he made to help uh, people understand pay inequity. And they did it as a, a meal app or a, a bill splitting app, right? So uh, the three of us go out to dinner, we're gonna, we're gonna split the check. Uh, we have to put in a little extra information. So Will, you're a, a I'll say a, a middle-aged white dude. Uh, Lynn, you are a young a white woman and I'm also a middle-aged white dude. Uh, if we had our, um, and, and maybe my, my, my younger uh, black friend is here as well, we put in those sorts of things and it'll actually split the check uh, based on uh, pay and, and other disequity stuff, right? So my younger friend who came along with us is, is paying 50% of the check and will you get off scot-free and you know, whatever you see what I'm right. saying? Like right. there are ways to use this stuff in the, in the service of teaching this stuff. I don't see it done a lot, but uh, I, I see it done uh, in some limited instances as well. Um, I would say lar my larger concern is that we're still not teaching in ways that are connected to the world at all. Right. right. So, we're having, a, we're having this conversation while we kind of want to be listening in on a, um, a Senate hearing. And I'm wondering how many classrooms did not acknowledge the fact that that Senate hearing happened today, right? So skip the algorithms. Just the fact that there is a world happening outside the classroom is still way too uh, yeah. narrow a thing that isn't being talked we, about. We've been having a debate along these lines in our community lately. We started out about banned books and moved into other areas that um, we're just not, we're just not talking about this stuff in, in classrooms and what the, you know, the consequences of that are. And, and how do you teach literacy if you're not teaching real world contexts for literacy? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like these books are made um, in isolation just for schools. And actually there are some books in isolation made just for school and they're terrible and nobody should read them because they don't come out of the rich tapestry of human experience, right? So, Anytime we disconnect the, the stuff that we're doing in our classroom from the actual things that are happening in the world, I just think everybody loses and we'll never get a rich, healthy discussion about algorithmic literacy, if you want to call it that, 
uh, or Al literacy for short. Uh, <laughs> we, we won't get there. And the it's idea just, of, the, of the algorithm as a sensor, a form of censorship that we're not, we're not talking about or, or sharing with kids or even adults realizing that when they're in a social space, if they're on Facebook or on Twitter, that their algorithms are essentially censoring content that is not available to them because of their prior activity in that space. And for kids, uh, they don't, they don't see that. They don't understand that that's happening in, even in their apps. And Snapchat, if, I, if I'm constantly viewing a certain type of story, those are the types of stories I'm going to keep seeing in the future. Um, and I'm essentially being censored from other types of viewpoints or information that I don't normally read. Yeah. Are you guys talking about Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression, at all? No. Um, it's, it's called Algorithms of Oppression. And that's the argument, is that, yeah. look, these algorithms are built largely by white guys in Silicon Valley. And it turns out that the assumptions that a white guy in Silicon Valley makes, I'm grossly oversimplifying this argument and you should read the book, it's incredible. I've only looked at some of it and I wanna read more of it. Um, like, it turns out their assumptions aren't universal human assumptions, but they are, I know. Um, said the white guy to the white guy. Uh, but we're not, we don't understand that. So we're not talking about it. And we're not helping our kids understand it. And they're making decisions based on the, the first or third search result, which is like a librarian's old lament. But it turns out that more and more, those things are getting customized, and that's a big deal. We and, and, and it is, I think, uh, what's, that, what's that phrase, or that, 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 that chickens come home to roost, or whatever that phrase is, right? But I think you see it right now in our society, in the United States especially, and around the world, where people are being fed their worldview over and over and over again, just being reinforcing what they already believe and then people are shocked when they can't have civil conversations <laughs> with one another because we've kind of lost the art of doing that and we don't really need to extend our brain power to get you know the information that we're looking for um and and it's a very scary thing i think i i'm i'm increasingly pessimistic about the future in large measure because of our inability to discern truth, to admit what truth is, even if it may not be the truth that we want to hear, and to um, to actively seek truth from a variety of sources, right? I mean, um, that's a scary, scary thing. And it, I think it puts democracy at risk, certainly, and it puts a whole bunch of other stuff at risk as well. So I think there's an urgency there, but why, why isn't that, why isn't, it doesn't feel like that's being felt very much in schools. Um, I don't, I don't know if you have any ideas on that or. Yeah. Yep. No, <laughs> I mean, Next question. I, I, this is why I think, this is why I get really excited about libraries right now. This is why I do think there's a fundamental thing in a library that isn't just the information. It's that it's that it's one of the few places left in American life where the conflicting ideas actually have to mash up. Like, uh, I look at our new bookshelf and I go, Oh, I want to read that. Oh, I want to read that. I can't believe that book exists. Oh, I can't believe. Okay, we're going to take that one and nobody ever gets to read it. I don't really do that. I don't censor the books. But even the stuff that's coming into the library is, is that way. But the people coming into the library should be that way as well, too. Um, and I think our schools should be places like this. But, but it's scary to actually lead with what if I'm wrong or what if this is different. That's not helpful, but I think it's important. It really, it, it goes back to the very first thing you said. I mean, I, I, do, I do think we're getting less and less curious because we don't need to be. And so the, I think the question becomes, how do we help people become more curious and ask more questions? Um, and maybe that's the role of the library, you know? I mean, it, maybe, it's, maybe it is the place in communities where you can have civilized, um, respectful conversations around things that are difficult to parse in the world, you know, that have lots of different angles to it. We hope so. And that's what we're trying to do. I mean, I would say that's the goal, period. How do we transcend this idea that, and this came up in our community discussions as well, that for so long schools have been community-based organizations of learning that really made a lot of decisions based on the norms, the shared values of that community. And because of that, perhaps they are closed minded to other viewpoints and other 
um, situations of which they're not familiar. So now if we're expecting and hoping that school leaders are going to take risks and open up those lines of conversation about these topics that all of our learners deserve to have access to, how do they start that conversation? Because that, that's one of the types of pushback we'll hear is, well, our community at its core, the, the one that our school is supposed to serve, isn't there yet or isn't comfortable with this topic or this type of information. And so, you know, I remember as a principal, there were some things that my community held fast to that I started to nudge to try to change. And it did not go well for me uh, as the leader, even though I thought I was acting in the best interest of the students that I, I was serving. Um, but those long held kind of traditions are at some point, they're, they're causing a, a, a halt in progress of, of information sharing or in critical thinking about things that maybe the community didn't explore before. How would you encourage a school leader or a teacher to, to broach those types of, that type of growth within their schools? One of the things you said that made me worry a little bit was the community's not comfortable with the thing, right? Like it actually is the discomfort where the growth is. Um, and I, so I think a good signal right now to a community that needs to have a conversation is the moment of going, oh, I'm not sure if we can talk about this. Because I feel like, I feel like those are the spaces that our country, our society, uh, me as a middle-aged white guy, like those are the places where we need to be looking right now. Um, because there's a lot of discomfort um, that is felt in other places that probably needs to be brought out and looked at, explored. And so I think the best Schools have always been struggling with this, right? Like we're trying to figure out who we are and we know we can do more. Uh, you know, we, we, we know that we're good for these kids. We'd like to be for those kids. The best American institutions have done that too. But it's, it's I think if we lean back and, um, you know, think about it as something that it's going to come to us or we don't need to do it because it might be discomfortable or uncomfortable, I think that's probably a big problem. So I would look for the areas of discomfort and I'd look for ways to, bolster the ability of your school or classroom to have a conversation with itself, right? So how are you setting norms? Who gets to speak? When are, what are the places where that gets to happen? Um, we've done a lot of work uh, in, in Northern Colorado. There's a really cool institute. Uh, it's a, he's a history professor. I think he's a history professor, but his, his work is all centered around um, how, do you, how do you have a hard conversation as a large group? So he works with grad students to um, go out into a sort of, he actually looks for conflicts and sends out his team of grad students to have these sorts of conversations. So how do you start safe from a place of comfort, move into discomfort and do it in a way that brings people along. Um, there, are other, there are a lot of other groups that do that. Um, it's not a new skill. It, the hard part now, in fact, uh, there, there are lots of people doing this work. Eric Lou's another person who does this with civic engagement. Uh, I can't remember the name of his organization. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a movie that came out, a PBS documentary that came out a little while ago called American Creed that looks at his work and a bunch of other people's work um, in, in having hard conversations. Um, but how do, we, how do we find those frictive moments and safely spend time in them? Um, the, the thing I was going to say before I got distracted by Eric Liu is that I think we are also a distractible people right now, right? Like we've got, we've got our, um, our crack boxes always ready to distract us onto the next thing. And figuring out how to decouple ourselves from those a little bit would be helpful too. So is technology killing literacy? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, we've never had more spaces in which to talk to each other than ever before, right? right but, we're not doing really, but we're not doing a very good job of doing that in social media, in online spaces. I mean, you have to admit, right? It's, it's gotten worse and getting worse. It's getting worse in a lot of the public spaces. So I want to push back on that a little bit, right? Reddit as a community does a great job for the most part of having online dis discussion. And one of the things they've learned, and I've read some stuff on this recently, is that when somebody is being uh, a jerk or a troll in your community, you just shut them out of the community. You're done. Because what it does is it, it, you, you, when you actually police behavior, people aren't are as terrible as they want to be, right? Now, I will say this morning, I was on a Periscope uh, thread watching uh, the aforementioned hearing and nobody in that space knew how to talk to each other. They weren't there to talk to each other. They were there to yell the loudest, right? And those spaces are terrible spaces. But I look at my daughter's text messages to her friends. I look at her Instagram uh, back and forth with two or three kids that um, 
and we're working on this as a family, but in some ways she can always reach out to, right? Like in some ways that's incredible, right? You, um, writing more, they're doing things. The public discourse is a little bit broken right now, but I also think it's because more people are trying to talk to more people in more spaces than has ever happened before in the history of the world, right? So when you're learning how to talk, you do a lot of things wrong. Uh, and I very much think we're learning how to do it. I, I don't think it's all broken. I think there are some terrible places. Um, God, even language is brand new. We have, we have for the first time in English, pic, pictorial language again, emojis, which I'm terrible at and they drive me nuts. Like kids are, and grownups are learning how to talk to each other in entirely different ways than they did before. Technology is created while well, people using technology, to get back to a larger point, have created entirely new languages for us to interact with each other. And I guess the question or the comparison is though, when kids are learning how to talk, we teach them. We are there to you know, counsel them or to correct them or to open up more possibilities for them to articulate what it is that they want to say. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm just kind of pushing back a little bit in the sense that I think it's, it's something that we have to think about. How, how able are we as adults to navigate these spaces because there are no real teachers for the types of you know, behaviors or the types of, of uh, uh, conversations that, that, we're, that we aspire to? And I know there are teachers, but they're you know, I think you know what I'm saying, right? They're not immediate. They're not in our face. Oh, yeah. and, and, and so I, I just wonder the path to a, a kind of uh, respectful dialogue online, if it's possible, outside of, outside of like salons, outside of kind of those, like, you know, like our community, which yeah. is a place, a place where um, we're trying to build a space where people can come and have interesting, deep, respectful conversations about things that matter to them without having to worry about all the, you know, screaming and yelling from people who are just trolls or whatever else. Yeah. I mean, you've built a private space for public conversation, right? And a lot of great public conversations are happening in private spaces. I, as you're talking about not having the teachers, one of the places I'm thinking about is Nextdoor. You guys know Nextdoor, the website? No, it's, it's so next door. Lynn, are you familiar with it? I've heard it referenced, but I've not. Okay, so, so next door is a social network for neighborhoods, right? So to get into a next door, right. you have to you have to physically live in a neighborhood, right? And the whole idea is we're bringing neighbors together. One of the one of my favorite places on the internet right now, and this says some things about me that I don't care very much for, um, <laughs> is is a is a series of spaces called Best of Next Door. <laughs> basically highlight the dumpster fire that happens you can talk to all of your neighbors on the internet at any time about anything right and what you said that I think is really important is that when we teach kids to talk we're, we're there with them and we're learning and we're, and we're working on it together we can there talk is, we know we know how to talk well to interact to, to, to correspond there is a generation of people who never had a teacher sitting with them in a discussion forum who suddenly have a bullhorn and a shotgun and are able to say anything they want to to anyone at any time. And so it's, it's messy right now. But I do think that spaces are learning how to embed the teachers, bringing in moderators, um, working it out. But we're also as a people realizing like, oh, I'm, I was a jerk on the internet. I wish we were a little faster about realizing that. But I do think we're learning how to do it right now. Um, it's not fast enough. I'm more concerned about the inability of people to speak to each other civilly at like a city council meeting. Right, because that's still not working and that feels to me like it's getting worse. Although if you read a lot of the uh, stuff that was getting published around the time of the uh, Revolutionary War, the people who had access to literacy were also jerks and terrible at talking to one another <laughs> in, in a lot of ways too. So it turns out people are- new. I feel much better, but thanks for <laughs> Happy to help. Um, I mean, it's a mess, right? It's a mess, but it's a beautiful mess because we've got more spaces and tools and things, I think, than we've ever had before. So is that kind of where your podcast was born? A more civil discourse? <laughs> is that your passion for wanting to bring people uh, up to speed with how we conduct ourselves in these spaces? That, that podcast is a, is a conversation that um, my friend Antero Garcia and uh, Zach Chase and Diana Lothenberg have been having for a long time about how do we create, how do we do the thing we were talking about earlier? How do we bring the real world into the classroom and how do we take the classroom out into the real world in ways that lead to what um, 
what I want, and I'm saying me, because this is my bias, I want civil to mean more than polite. Um, and so what we're trying to do on that show is, is break apart and unpack and explore when we say, what does it mean to be civil? Um, it, it doesn't just mean kind, it doesn't just mean uh, respectful, it means being brave sometimes, right? I think uh, if, you, if you know, if you learn nothing about else about what's going on today in the Senate right now. It's that uh, some people uh, have taken brave stances and done the civil thing, the civic thing. That was what I heard over and over again this morning. And, and that's not what you would in, in, a, in a little kid's book on civility read. Like, you know, I stood up to my accuser is not page four of the civility book, but it's a thing that you do in American life. Um, and so we're trying to understand that and we're trying to talk about it. And it's a good excuse for the four of us to try to talk to each other because we like each other. And usually they can make me laugh and I learn things better when uh, I'm laughing uh, a lot of the time. So that's what we're trying to do there. So what's the, uh, is that the path forward? Just continue to work through the, the mess, this transition period that we're in. And I, I agree with you. I do think that we are in the messy middle right now and in a lot of ways, right? I think we're right. in the messy middle when it comes to the stories we, we tell about schools. I think we're moving from one story to another story and we're not sure what that new story is, but we're in the middle of it right now and it's getting kind of, you know, it's getting kind of tense and, and difficult and, and all that. But it, it, so is it just that we work through it or do we, do we create different spaces? Do we create, uh, um, I don't know, different models? I mean, what do you think? Well, as you know, as you know, it's, it's clearly three steps and those steps I will now give you and we will be done. Uh, well, we're out of time, everyone. So. Oh, well, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Oh, no, um, it's a lot of things. I guess my, my, my baggage on the messy middle is that we've always been in the messy middle. And so here's my charge. If, if I had my way, um, I did a thing a, a few years ago. We looked at sort of these... Uh, a hundred years of writing about technology in schools for a, a issue of an English journal. And what we learned in that uh, looking was we read every article about every new technology invention that was coming into classrooms and how it was gonna change the world, right? Just like we read stuff about uh, blogs. There was this dude Richardson who was really into those a while ago. Um, we read Wait, about- I got this out to mess with Oh my right. God. Boom! There it is. <laughs> that's, a very, that's a sad commentary on your life, Lynn. <laughs> Mine's in the other room. Um, the uh, microfilm, the personal computer, mainframe computers, teletype, I mean, all these things. There is a period of time where people, it seems like the response to technology that we saw was, wow, that could be cool and it will change everything. We're not quite ready to go though because it needs to get a little more fancy or a little more or whatever. And so again and again, the argument was, it's, it's almost time. It's almost time. It's almost time. And I guess my thing is, no, stop it. It is time. It was time then. It's already been time. Um, we need people to be brave. We need people to try. We need people to step up. We need people to, to do things and be honest about whether or not they work, um, which is easy to say and incredibly hard to do. Um, but that's why I like the wondering, if we want to go back full circle. When people are able to pay attention to what they're doing and see how it's working and how it's not, um, you know, honestly ask questions of themselves, interrogate the, the, each other in safe and healthy ways. Um, I wish organizations were better at asking themselves questions, um, but that's, that's where I actually think good change comes and we get to better spaces. Um, so don't, don't just allow it's the messy middle to be sufficient, right? Okay, fine. It's messy. What are we going to do about it? That's the question. Yeah, well, and, and you just start. Right. If we think this is if you think that kids don't know how to talk to each other or grownups don't know how to be polite in civil engagements, how are you going to model that? When are you going to start? When are you going to practice? Literacy is never an event. It should always be a habit. That's yeah. uh, a thing that that I think is really important. And I think too often at school we say, well, it's this is uh, we'll do uh, tweets this week and we'll figure out tweets and then we'll talk about them once and you'll write one tweet. And then we'll go on to brochures and we'll make a brochure and you'll do the one time like there should be a, a habitual application of this stuff. And, you know, one of my favorite phrases comes from Harold Jarkey up in Canada who calls this moment, everything's in perpetual beta right now. Mm -hmm. And so literacy is certainly in perpetual beta. Right? And it always has been, right? So, But it does feel more acute today, I think. It does feel more like, and maybe it's because I'm getting to be an older middle-aged white guy, but it does, it does feel like um, the speed with which new technologies are adopted, um, the speed with which um, we can now just 
message the world and and you know have a megaphone and and produce and share and publish without any barriers um i think that it just feels different in terms of how quickly it's changing and that makes it that much more um important i think that for us as educators it becomes not just about literacies but also about dispositions right and about skills and about putting kids out into the world who understand that it is constantly changing and they do have to constantly upskill or whatever you know verb you want to use that it's not just because you are literate and you graduate from high school or college doesn't mean that you're going to be literate in two years or even two weeks when something new pops you know what i mean and and I, I worry about our ability as educators and as places of education to to keep up with that um and and uh how that rolls out yeah i mean i think it's an important worry have you read a lot of tom standage i have not okay so he's written a couple of books that i think are really great and he has a new podcast out called the secret history of the future he's he, I think he's the editor in chief for The Economist, but his, his sort of passion is the history of technology. And he wrote a book a few years ago called Writing on the Wall. And it's, it, he calls it, the subtitle of the book is something like the first 2000 years of social media. Um, and the premise, of the, the premise of the book is that basically, um, we've always been fat. He doesn't quite say it this way, but I think I've, I've gleaned this. It, it's always gotten faster. It's always worse today than it was yesterday. And it's not as fast as it will be tomorrow. Right, like the, the perpetual beta of communication is that it is always getting faster. There is always more information, right? The information explosion of 1620 was terrible for the people of 1620. It's nothing for us. The one of 2020 for us is gonna be terrible, but the one, the 2120 folks won't experience it as an explosion. It's just the way that it is. Um, and I think it's important to remember that. I also think it's important to remember that the people who are successful in um, either creating new things, right? You can think about success as being a good artist or you can think about success as making money off a thing. Um, whatever your definition of success is, they're the people who go, oh, this is new and different. Let me get my hands dirty with it and try it out. Uh, he's got another book called The Victorian Internet, which aside from talking about uh, the love uh, escapades of telegraph operators in neighboring cities uh, <laughs> and how they would have hot chats late into the night, uh, which sounds an awful lot like the way uh, some people use the internet today. Um, it, it, he explores how, what it means when you have this new medium and what do you, how do you develop new norms and new expectations and things, right? Just like somebody's gonna start figuring out that emoji on resumes are not the end of the world. Um, right now, there's a lot of people who would hate that and it's gonna come and it's gonna be a thing and it would freak me out, but um, it's, yeah, it's always in perpetual beta. Um, so what then would you say, since we can't, we can't keep up, and I think where we fall short a lot of times with what we approach in schools as digital literacy, uh, the kind of cookie cutter lessons and topics we're sharing that do, like you said, they focus on a thing, like a tweet. Here's a, here's a number of characters. Here's how you write succinctly. But what instead are some maybe must focus on skills or like Will was saying, dispositions that if all kids get this and have the opportunity to practice this and share in this way that will set them up for success no matter what the newest thing is. I think the ability to um, look at a rhetorical situation, I said this earlier, but I still think that's incredibly important. Who's my audience? How, how might I persuade them? Are, you know, logos and pathos, right? When, when do I appeal with emotion? When do I appeal with reason? Uh, what does it mean to appeal to reason to somebody I don't know or have never met? What does it mean to appeal to emotion? Same way. Um, what is it? How do I, how do I have empathy for other people and other situations? Um, and then that little bit of, of wondering about the, the stuff that you're being literate with itself. How are these things made? Who puts them together? Who gets to decide what the rules are? What are the rules? How can I break the rules? I mean, it's not that different from traditional uh, writing instruction, except that you're thinking about words sometimes as pictures or as video clips. Uh, you're thinking about uh, sentences sometimes as uh, a vine or a, a longer video um, you, and helping kids to realize that, that these, these things, I mean, the Twitter scroll on, on the nightly news, why are they showing tweets? Which tweets get shown? Why do they get five minutes of airtime on that? Um, those sorts of things I think are really important to deconstruct and help people unpack. There's a media literacy guy named Jason Oler who says that you can never be, I'm going to butcher this quote, uh, 
something like you can never be taken advantage of in a media that you've deconstructed uh, or in a media in which you've composed. So we need to help kids make in all the mediums right. and, and, and spaces that they're being exposed to. Um, probably wouldn't hurt if you tried to build your own algorithm at some point uh, or building a bot, right? Like uh, those sorts of experiences let you do the Wizard of Oz behind, see the, the guy behind the curtain and, and then get that power and that ability to not be uh, treated the same as you were before you did it. I think that echoes Papert, you know, I mean, yeah. and, and what he was saying about that. My, um, I wonder the extent that we'll get to those things unless they appear on the test. Yeah, I'm not worried about that as much as I used to be. Uh, and that's my baggage. So I, for 10 years, I was indirectly or directly responsible for the grading portal for a public school district, right? I made sure that parents could get into it. I made sure they could log into it. I made sure they could do these things. I have never once logged into a grading portal for any of my three children. Um, I, I know that they are paying attention in school. They have curiosity about the world. I find things that I hand to them and say, I don't know what this is. Do you think you could figure it out? And sometimes they say, dad, that's stupid. And sometimes they say, this is great, this is amazing. Um, I'm not as worried about the test because the experiences that, I think we can create compelling experiences for children that the test either won't measure or can't measure and it's not, it's not necessary to measure. That's Bud Hunt's naive opinion, I know. I know school administrators would disagree with what I just said. Um, I'm fine with that. Well, we agree and that's all that matters. Well, thank you, school administrators. There's also a lot of there's also just a lot of cool stuff in the world that kids can play with. That it turns out when they get good at it, uh, teachers and schools get really excited to showcase. Yeah. Test is one day. It's four days. There's 180 days in a year. We are very happy that you came to join us today. Thank Thanks. you. Yeah, it's fun to talk to you guys. It was. I'm. Uh, going to go back and reference some of the things that you shared and definitely um, share some of that in our community too. Will, do you have any final words or questions? Or? Just that you're looking very pensive, Lynn. I think that uh, Bud has had a huge impact. I know. I'm going to go <laughs> blog, I think. <laughs> I'm still a fan of people doing that. I know it's old school, but take a little time, write a little thing, share it on the internet. There you go. Yeah, I, I do not believe the blog is dead and I mm -hmm. still tell people to to get to that space a domain of one's own that's what everyone needs I believe yes all right good. yeah, yeah it's good to talk to you guys good to see you both yeah, yeah you too yeah, let's do Take it again care. soon bye okay thanks for tuning in this podcast has been brought to you by Modern Learners Community. Won't you consider joining us there? We have links and discussions around relevant content that is looking to shape your practices as a leader, as a practitioner in schools today. We are looking for members who are passionate about learning and who want to bring their voices and their expertise to our community space. Every week, we have dialogue around hot topics in education, things that really matter to today's leaders that address the things that they are wondering about, and we work to support one another through reimagining school and making it a place that is special and exciting for all learners. So visit us at modernlearners.com slash MLC today and we hope you'll give us a try. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee and we can't wait to see you inside. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.